Have you ever allowed your imagination to run wild about the world of work? To wonder what would happen if we tore up all the rules and started again? Welcome to What If, a podcast from the CIPD's work magazine that dares to ask the previously unthinkable. I'm Jenny Roper, editor of Work Magazine. This episode, I'll be asking, what if no one had to work? Slightly terrifying headlines about the robots coming to take our jobs have proliferated over the last decade or so. Predictions from experts differ wildly. Google the matter, perhaps frantically, and you'll quickly come across a 2015 BBC News article allowing readers to input their occupation and discover the likelihood of their role becoming automated. 8% for a journalist or editor, by the way. It was based on research by Oxford University and Deloitte, which found that about 35% of UK jobs were at high risk of computerisation over the next 20 years. So seven years on, has this started to come to pass? Research from PwC last year found 40% of workers think their job will be obsolete within five years, and six in ten are concerned about machines taking their jobs. It highlighted, too, that humans and machines are predicted by the World Economic Forum to spend an equal amount of time on tasks as each other at work by 2025. So what will those who lose their jobs do? Find a new one? or embrace a previously unthinkable existence of pure leisure, probably supported in some way by the state? And crucially, what would all of this mean for workplaces, HR, and for people's sense of purpose and what it means to live a meaningful life? To help unpack this huge topic, I spoke to Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the NHS Confederation, author of Do We Have to Work? and former Chief Advisor on Political Strategy to Tony Blair. I also spoke to Daniel Suskind, a fellow in economics at Balliol College, Oxford, and author of A World Without Work. So first things first, how likely do Matthew and Daniel think mass unemployment will be in future? Daniel first. Ever since modern economic growth began about 300 or so years ago, people have suffered from periodic bursts of anxiety about the technologies of the time taking on the work that they do. Uh, And by and large, those worries have turned out to be misplaced. Uh, And so the the question then is, well, why is this time different? And the short answer is that this time is different because these technologies are gradually, but just relentlessly taking on tasks and activities that until recently we thought only human beings alone could ever do making medical diagnoses and driving cars, drafting legal contracts and designing buildings, composing music and writing news reports. The the longer answer is that when you look at the different economic forces that have tended to increase the demand for workers who have been displaced by technologies in the past, when you look at the nature of those economic forces, it seems to me there are reasons to think that because of these technological changes, those forces might not be as reliable in decades to come uh, as they were uh, in in past centuries. Um, Now, just to give you an example, I was once talking to a group of accountants and there was a um, a particularly boisterous accountant in the audience and he stood up and said, look, Daniel, you don't understand. The reason my clients come to me is because they want the personal touch. They want the empathetic interaction. They want me to look them in the eyes. And I said to this accountant, look, I, 
I don't think that is why your clients come to you. They come to you because they want their taxes done efficiently and effectively. And if they can find an alternative that, yeah, a technological alternative that doesn't involve you, uh, but is more affordable and achieves the outcomes that they want, then they're probably going to go with that instead. And I think this is a this is a challenge to many professionals, and not just accountants, it's professionals of all stripes, including those in healthcare. Because while it's certainly true that there are some activities that we value and we care about the fact that a human being is providing them, that's not true for everything that professionals do. And I think they tend to overstate or overestimate the extent to which people really care about the fact that a human being is involved. So what sort of timescales does Daniel have in mind for the radical displacement of human labour by technology? And just how radical is this likely to be? In my book and in my work, I make a distinction between two different types of technological unemployment, two different ways in which people might find themselves without work because of technological change. The first is what I call frictional technological unemployment. And this is where there are enough jobs for people to do, but just for various reasons, people aren't able to do those jobs. And the most obvious reason for that is that they just don't have the right skills, the right capabilities to do the work that has to be done. And it seems to me that that's where we are now. When people find themselves without work because of technology, it's less to do with there not being enough jobs full stop. And it's more just they often don't have the right skills and capabilities to do the work that has to be done. I don't think that skills mismatch is the only mismatch. I think there are other ones which are often neglected. I think there are important mismatches of place that people just don't happen to live in the right place where work has been created. And I also think there are mismatches of identity. Quite often people have a conception of themselves and they're willing to stay out of work in order to protect that identity. So I think there's lots of mismatches there. But fundamentally, it seems to me that the challenge for now is a frictional one. There is work, but for various reasons, there are things stopping people moving into that work. I do worry about a different problem, which is a problem where there just aren't enough jobs for people to do full stop. And this is what we can call, what I call structural technological unemployment. And that, it seems to me, is a challenge, not really for now, although I think we can get a glimpse of it unfolding in various corners of the labour market today. But it's a challenge of the 21st century. It's a challenge of decades. It's a challenge for you know, my children and my grandchildren. That's the sort of time horizons that I have in mind here. Trying to be any more specific on timings than that probably foolish. There are so many things that are uncertain. But as a, as a rough you know, heuristic for thinking about the nature of the challenges that we face now and are likely to face in the next generation and the generation to come, it seems to me that's a, a useful simplification for thinking about the timings. But Matthew Taylor, who you will also know from his Taylor Review of Modern Working Practices for Government in 2016, sits at the other end of the spectrum, highlighting the stark divide between thinkers in this area. Matthew, by contrast, strongly doubts that the desire for the human touch in many areas of our lives will ever fade. As such, he is sceptical that society-wide unemployment will ever become a reality, even for our children and grandchildren. I think it's completely impossible that we would have a world without jobs. If what we mean by jobs is people undertaking work, which is not for their own intrinsic purposes, but is for somebody else in exchange for some form of remuneration. I think there are lots of reasons why that's extremely unlikely, indeed impossible. 
One is it's simply not efficient for us to try to meet all our own needs ourselves or to meet all our own needs using only voluntary labour of our, our loved ones. Um, you know, the complexity of our lives is such that we need other people to provide services for us, whether it's broadband or energy or food or a whole variety of services. You know, um, we would have to want to live in a world where we never wanted to go to a restaurant, we never wanted to go to a pub. So I think it's extremely unlikely. And indeed, the area of work that's kind of growing fastest and has been for some time is the service sector. In many ways, you could argue that there's almost an unlimited capacity for us to consume other people's labour. So if you look, for example, at the richest people in the world, they employ an entire entourage. You know, they will have cooks, they will have masseurs, they will have personal assistants, they will have lawyers, they'll have accountants. So there is absolutely no conceivable possibility of a world in which we do not have most adults, I would say, uh, in some form of employment. We also need to remember that we have a choice over how much employment our economies support. A crucial part of Matthew's work for the government on modern employment practices, along with his more headline-grabbing findings on the gig economy, was around what constitutes good work and what bad. If work can be good for us, then why would we automate all jobs just because we can? In fact, the march of technology is not one in which humans will necessarily inevitably be trampled. And actually, both Matthew and Daniel agree on this point. First Matthew, then Daniel. I think work meets some really fundamental human needs. It meets the need for a sense of purpose. We all want to feel that we are doing something of value in the world. And as long as you feel that your job is in some way doing something of value, that meets an important human need. Work often also meets the need that we have for sociability, to be part of a team, to be part of a group, because for many people, work gives that sense of being in a group and working with other people towards something which is a shared objective. And work can also be the place where we achieve what psychologists call mastery. The question is, how do we move from where we are to a more automated world in a way that doesn't damage people too much along the way? And you know, we as a society in Britain are still suffering 40 years on from the brutal way in which manufacturing was shaken out uh, in the early 80s and where whole communities lost work and where men in particular, working class men in particular, saw their, not just their income, but their status, their sense of connectedness taken away from them overnight. So automation is a good thing, but we, we have to think really long and hard about how it is we ensure that if there are areas of work where it's likely that the machines will do more and human beings will do less, that we get that transition right and that we don't damage people and leave people high and dry on the way. Often automation gets a bad name, not because of its long-term effects, but because of the way in which companies, governments fail to be responsible and thoughtful about how it is they enable people to transition when the nature of work changes. Technological change has a direction. It isn't something that's completely out of our control. You know, we have some discretion in shaping the sorts of technologies that we develop and in choosing the sorts of technologies that we decide to use uh, in the workplace. Uh, And so thinking about being not just sort of passive recipients of technological change, but sort of active, you know, actively engaged with the 
thinking through the kind of technologies that we want in the workplace is um, is I think a really important task, not only for people in HR, but across organizations. You know, there's a lot of discussion in the economics literature, for instance, at the moment about how we ought to be focusing on how we can encourage people to develop technologies that complement human beings, that increase the demand for their work, rather than substitute for human beings uh, that decrease the demand for their work. Uh, and many economists have made the observation that at the moment, many of the incentives, many of the regulatory structures that people have to engage with actively encourage people to use technologies that substitute rather than complement for human beings. The point being that there are you know, many technological possibilities for leaders and managers and people across organizations to choose from and thinking about the optimal choice of those technologies in a particular workplace environment I think is, is very important. What kind of relationship do you want and how can you choose technologies to encourage and, and support that relationship? But what if both are wrong, as they both concede they might be? What if, going back to Daniel's original point, we can't exert as much mastery as we might like to think over technological change and economic forces? What sort of mechanisms might government need to roll out to support people to live? So I think there are three different challenges. One is this economic challenge of how do we slice up the economic pie in a world where our traditional way of doing so, paying people for the work that they do, is, is less effective than it has been in the past. The second is a challenge of meaning and purpose. How do we provide people with a sense of direction and fulfillment if work no longer sits at the center of their lives? And then the third is what we do about these large technology companies who are increasingly responsible for developing these technologies in the first place. And not only the economic power that they have, but the political power that they have as well. In response to the first question, this economic power we share our income in society. Well, you know, to put it bluntly, if we can't rely upon the world of work to do it, we need something else to do it. And, and what I argue in, in my book is that we need a, a big state to do it. We need the state to take on a larger role in sharing our income in society if we can no longer rely upon the labor market to do it. Now, people sometimes recoil at the word or the phrase big state, but it's, it's important to say this isn't the big state of the 20th century. It's not teams of smart people sitting in central government offices trying to command and control economic affairs from a distance. It's not a big state of production. It's a big state of distribution. It's a state that takes on a larger role in sharing our income and prosperity in society in a world where we can't rely upon the labour market to do it. There are various proposed ways of doing exactly this. But the one that gets discussed most frequently, perhaps, is universal basic income, a regular, unconditional, automatic payment made to every citizen to cover all essential living expenses. But is waiting for a future in which people cannot meet these costs because of a lack of work missing a trick? Could such a system actually be used to help people through frictional unemployment and indeed our current cost of living crisis? Giving people the time and space to retrain or move to a new line of work. Here's Matthew. There's a popular view of universal basic income, popular because I think it's kind of simple and it sparks people's imagination, which is of a world where we don't work and where we pay people to live a life of leisure, that's wholly impractical. Um, actually, the value of universal basic income is almost the reverse of that, which is that universal basic income is a way of supporting people in work. So in the most basic way, uh, it massively reduces the poverty trap because the thing about universal basic income is, as its name implies, that everybody or almost everybody gets it. So if you get a job, unlike 
means tested benefits you don't lose those benefits you keep them so actually universal basic income incentivizes work and where universal basic income has been trialed around the world it the effect on people working has is, is found to be neutral or positive apart from a couple of groups so it turns out they go universal basic income some mothers choose to spend slightly longer at home with their children which seems to me to be a fair choice fathers as well ought to make that choice so um, universal basic income the practical model the model that i think serious people use is one that's actually uh, supports people in work but what it does do also is it does enable people to have a little bit of support if they not they don't like their job um, and a lot of people don't like their job an opportunity for example to think about training or to just spend a bit of time thinking about what choices you want to make so universal basic income on the one hand gives people basic dignity and security and enables them to have some freedom to make choices in their life. But on the other hand, it actually incentivizes and encourages people to work. Indeed, encouraging people to work or do something constructive with their time might actually prove the most pressing problem in a world without many jobs. Going back to the idea of good work and back to one of Daniel's key three challenges, just as urgent as how to divide the economic pie and support people to live, might be the matter of what they do all day. Would most still choose to work where the existence of some form of universal basic income meant they didn't really have to? Would they fill their time and stay out of trouble by pursuing hobbies? Or would a more dystopian picture of sofa slumping and societal unrest, even breakdown, emerge? Here's Daniel, pointing out that the pandemic presented a sort of mini experiment to help us start to answer this big philosophical question. I think it's such a fascinating question. And I think the fact that it's a question uh, suggests to me that it's something we haven't thought enough about yet. After the publication of A World Without Work, which came out in January of 2020, the pandemic hit two months later. All of a sudden, we found ourselves in a world with less work, not because the robots had taken everyone's jobs, but because you know this virus just completely decimated the demand that so many jobs relied upon. So, you know, we found ourselves in a world with less work. And, and those challenges that I was writing about with respect to automation, challenges of distribution, of meaning, of power, we found ourselves facing not because of robots, but because of the virus. And the meaning question was particularly interesting because the one of the, I thought, most fascinating, but also most inconclusive parts of the sort of public commentary over the last few years was around how people ought to best spend their time in the sort of enforced idleness that many people found themselves in under lockdown. Uh, if we cast our minds back, all those stories about um, uh, you know, DIY stores running out of timber as people decided to do their fencing or ran out of paints as people decided to take up home decorating or you know, bakers running out of yeast and certain types of particularly useful flour, you know, all of these things as people were kind of clambering around to find a sense of direction and fulfillment and meaning in a world where work was no longer available to them. Um, what I found interesting about it was that it seems to me that all of that was relatively inconclusive and that while we have a good sense of what gainful employment looks like, I don't think we really have a good sense of what gainful unemployment looks like don't think it's really a conversation that we've properly had. Another key part of this apparently yet to be had conversation is what our education system might need to look like. 
those falling squarely into the arguably more pessimistic camp of predicting tech will eventually take over most jobs certainly believe education will need to be radically reimagined. It will need to prepare people not to find a job, but for the perhaps more daunting prospect of deriving purpose from a life without one. But even those like Matthew, who don't think all jobs will eventually go, still think education needs rethinking in this vein. I think our education system needs to prepare people for the world of work, but it also needs to prepare people for life in general. And I would include in that the psychological and emotional challenges of life. So I think there's been a bit of a change here as a consequence of COVID and the impact that COVID has had on young people. I think that we've got to have a more holistic approach to what education is for and how it enables people to live the fullest lives uh, they can. You know, work is part of the lives that we have to lead, but it's only part of the lives we have to lead. And many of the skills we need for work are actually the same skills we need for life. And many employers will tell you that they feel perfectly capable of training people to do work once they've arrived. What they find difficult is people who arrive not ready for the very idea of work, not ready to be in a team, not ready to take initiative. So um, employers, I think, very often will say to you that, yes, they do need people with specific skills in kind of STEM areas, but actually more generally what they want is just young people who have the kind of resilience, initiative, self-confidence, communication skills to be able to adapt. So the jury's out, with predictions differing dramatically on whether what our benefits and education systems need to adapt to is a world without work or just a world where lines of work disappear much more quickly than in the past. It is, of course, a huge conundrum facing organisations and HR too. But even Daniel, with his predictions of mass unemployment, the likes of which we've never seen before, advises them to focus their immediate energies on frictional unemployment and the quality of people's experiences in the workplace today. First Daniel, then Matthew, to take us to the end of the episode. I mean, I think for now, the main concern of people in the world of HR should be with those frictional issues. The challenge at the moment is, well, how do we provide people with the skills and the capabilities to do the work that has to be done? That, that's the challenge for now. And very crudely, I think there are two strategies here. Either we ought to be training people to compete with these systems and machines, to do the sorts of things that these systems and machines cannot do. Or we ought to be training people to build these systems and machines, to be the sorts of people who are capable of designing and operating these increasingly capable technologies. What we should not be doing is training people to do the kind of routine activities that many of these technologies are already very good at doing. And and that, I think, is a challenge to many educational institutions, many professional organizations, um, many people in the world of HR, because that's often exactly what we're doing. We're providing people with skills and capabilities to do activities that these technologies are already very good at doing. That feels to me the sensible focus in the medium term, the next, say, 10 years. That that ought to be the priority. I think that if HR professionals want to think about the future in a kind of visionary way, what they should not be doing is thinking about the future in terms of a mythical world in which everyone is replaced by machines. What they should instead be thinking about is a world where the way we organise work is very different. I think at the heart of that is about recognising that some of the characteristics of our workplaces, deep set characteristics, are problematic. So hierarchy and control are problematic. How do we have workplaces where things get done, but they get done through teams, through a kind of flat way of working, where they enable people to have autonomy? That's, I think 
the big and visionary question here. So I, I think if we're going to kind of gaze into the crystal ball for the future, let's completely reimagine our organization's work. Let's imagine a world in which everybody at work is fulfilled. How would you have to change the nature of organizations for that to happen? How would they need to be owned? How would they need to be run? What would need to be the assumptions that ran through them? But the problem now in the labor market is not the one that everyone said it would be, which is there's far too few jobs because all the automation. The problem is the one I said there would be which is people not wanting to work because of the kind of work that is being offered to them, stressful, uh, dissatisfying, unreasonable, unfair work. People don't want to do that. So that, I think, is the big future challenge that HR should focus on. You have been listening to the What If podcast, brought to you by the CIPD's Work magazine. To find out more about how the CIPD is dedicated to better work and working lives, visit cipd.co.uk. And don't forget to check out the rest of the What If series from your podcast provider or the peoplemanagement.co.uk website.